So we're going to dive into a, a pretty unique section this morning. It, it, Paul is making a significant turn. We, we, we've, been, we've worked through all of chapter 1 and all this tied to chapter 1, um, where, where Paul exalts the name of Christ. He, he talks about who Christ is. He, he, he sets that up. And now as we've gotten into this part of chapter 2, he's basically making a turn, a pivot. This is a, there's a, a pivot in the thinking of, of this moment encouragement in this church. Some, some people actually refer to it as the heart of this letter. Paul's already established this truth of who Christ is, and now he shifts from simply imparting knowledge to a shift in how that affects your life. He begins to talk about transformation. It's about moving from theory to practice, from words to actions, from communication to implication. And so the core idea that Paul presents here in this connection between faith and action and how those things are intertwined, woven together, and, and what we believe should impact how we live, Paul is basically going to tell us that if we truly embrace the truth of the message of who Jesus Christ is, it should manifest in our lives. Our faith in Christ, our daily conduct, should be tied together like threads in a fabric. So let's read together beginning of verse 2. I mean, sorry, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now I want us to begin here looking in at verses 6 and 7. Paul does something here he doesn't do very often. He actually mixes his metaphors. Now, he integrates horticulture metaphors and construction metaphors. We see them in the text. They're easy to spot. Rooted, built up, established, abounding. Now, I don't know if that has any significance or not. I just thought it was a kind of a, a unique thing Paul doesn't do. I thought it was interesting. And... And I know I don't usually go into grammar and Greek and all that in these sermons because, for one, it's usually not necessary. And two, most of y'all remember grammar rules about like you remember that one year of high school Spanish. So it's really not that, you know, there's no really need. But I, there's something unique happening here, and it needs to be pointed out. And I'm going to geek out for a minute on some of the grammar in here. And the y'all that like it, great. And the rest of y'all just bear with me for a, for a few minutes. Our first metaphor, rooted. Rooted is present perfect tense. I'll, you don't have to remember what that is. I'll just tell you. Here's why it matters. That means that rooted in this verse 
has already happened in the past, but it matters for the present. Paul tells us that these believers rooted in Christ, rooted in the truth of the gospel as a foundation of faith, this has happened. That's salvation. However, he's not simply talking about simple faith and belief. He's specifically referring to what it is you believe. Because rooted as a metaphor points towards something. It's a horticulture metaphor. Rooted means you're rooted in something. And that's the truth that Paul established here in chapter 1. The truth of who Christ is, that this church that this church was taught by Epaphras and others and now Paul. And this teaching that, that has received the roots of the faith, this image takes us back to the words of Jeremiah, who talks about the one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by the waters and, and whose roots reach out to the stream and it can't be moved, if, you, if you're familiar with that passage. The, the, when, the, when the summer heat comes, it still has green leaves. Its, its fruit never fails. It never has to deal with drought. It's a powerful symbol of, of the nourished, a well-nourished faith. So Paul is establishing here that what you're rooted in matters. Are you rooted in the truth of Christ and who he is? Or are you rooted in something that carries the name of Christ but isn't actually the truth of the gospel? Because what you're rooted in will affect how you live. I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, there's a photo under sermons. Scroll down, you'll see that photo. Do you see it, Emma? No? You see it? All right. So this is in my backyard. When we bought this house several years ago, Lisa and I started three years ago, we started working on this backyard. It's a perpetual project. That's not the same tree, but those trees were purchased at the same time. That tree on the right, this was taken two days ago. That tree on the right, those are dwarf magnolia trees. That tree on the right's budding. It's got flowers. We're waiting for them to open. Lisa's so excited about those, those opening. That one on the left, I don't know if you can see it, but it's got five leaves on it. And we're not sure it's going to make it. Um, we've been nursing that thing now for the last six or seven months. Uh, I have probably killed it, but we're going to hold out hope that I have not killed it. But let me tell you what happened to those two trees. That tree on the right, I went and bought dirt for that tree. I went and bought dirt for both trees, but I ran out of dirt on that tree on the right, and I thought, well, I got dirt. Dirt's dirt. It won't matter what dirt I put these trees in. It'll grow because dirt's dirt, right? No, that's not true. Dirt's not dirt. That tree on the left, the dirt wouldn't drain and it got root rot because it wasn't rooted in the right soil. Trees bought at the same time. Those trees are 15 feet from each other uh, in my backyard in those concrete planters. And that one on the right was rooted in the right soil that one on the left rooted in the wrong soil. They got the same amount of water. They got the same fertilizer. And one's thriving, and the other one's probably going to a tree grave here before the end of the summer. What you're rooted in matters. It matters to your health. It matters to your fruit. Are you rooted in the truth of who Jesus Christ is? 
are you rooted in something that's just kind of carrying his name generically, but it's not actually the truth of the gospel? So now Paul switches metaphors. He's talking about building, being built up, constructed in Christ. Now, the other metaphors he uses, this built up and established, these metaphors are an ongoing process. It's a bit of a jump from trees to buildings, but that's where the grammar gets interesting. See, these metaphors are present tense. So the idea of being built up reminds us that we are a work in progress. Our faith is continually growing. It's continually evolving. Well, why does that matter? Well, let's think about it. Present tense. You are being built up right now. You are being established right now. And the result of this being built up and the result of this being established is an abundance of thanksgiving that pours over in spiritual strength. And the reason the present tense matters is because Paul is telling this young church that this is a work of God. You are being built up by the truth of the gospel. It implies that you're under construction currently, but you're not finished yet. It reminds me of the old children's song, He's Still Working on Me. Y'all know that song? I would sing it for you, but I'm not. Go look it up. He's Still Working on Me. It's an awesome little song. That's why I grew up singing it. I'll teach it to the kids. By the way, I forgot to dismiss the kids. Did they leave? They took off? I figured. They, they, know, they know the drill now. All right, so this is where it gets good. This is where I get a little geeky, okay, on my tenses here. Not only are these words present tense, they're present tense in the passive voice. Here's why that matters. This implies that something outside of you is doing the building and establishing. And it's apparent from the text that it is God that is orchestrating our growth as Christians. We're not the ones rooted, built up, strengthened ourselves. It's God working in us all along. And the result is that we overflow with thanksgiving, thankfulness. And unlike the first three, this, this thankfulness is implying our response. This is, this is applied to us. The thanksgiving is not coming from God. The thanksgiving is coming from us. God works in our lives. We brim over with gratitude. The word picture here is a jug of wine that's so full it's spilling over the sides. Abounding with thankfulness is a sign of a robust spiritual life. Overflowing with gratitude for what God has already accomplished is, means you will be less likely to succumb to fear, less likely to succumb to doubt, less likely to be enticed by those things that are telling you real spiritual fulfillment comes from other things other than Christ. This, this overflow of thanksgiving will help you not be so easily swayed by deceitful promises or near-minded criticisms. And I know it's out of order, but let's back up to verse 6 because I thought it might be more impactful if I told you where we already were going before we got there. So I said before that Paul is talking about the connection between belief and action. In the phrase, receiving Christ Jesus as Lord in verse 6, we need to be careful that we don't confuse how we normally kind of use that term in modern day uh, thought and talk. And, and, and we use it a little bit different than Paul means it here. Today, when we say somebody received Christ Jesus as Lord, we usually refer to, we're usually talking about like a specific moment, a, 
a personal spiritual moment when somebody invites Jesus into their life, essentially a marking point of when they became a Christian. That's how we typically use that term when we meet him. And there are a couple of places where the phrase is used that way in Scripture, but that's not what Paul is referring to here, and it's important. In fact, to be honest with you, that's not even the primary way the New Testament uses that verse. I mean that phrase. Just as you have received, paints a picture of clutching on to the teachings passed down about Christ from one person to another. So in Colossians 2, when Paul talks about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, he's really pointing to the teachings about Jesus that they've embraced, not a moment of regeneration. So connecting the dots, receiving Jesus as Lord, is not just a moment of personal spiritual experience. It's about accepting the teachings and accepting the message about Jesus as Lord, making a public declaration of faith, joining the Christian community as a body of Christ. That's what it means to receive Christ Jesus as Lord. You'll see this usage multiple times, probably a dozen times in the New Testament, just a couple of places. 1 Corinthians 11, it's used. Philippians 4, 9, it's used. Thessalonians 3, 6. This morning, Brent read it in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said it runs along the same lines. It says, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. We see the received language. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. So when the Colossians, when the Colossians talks about having received, it's talking about the essential teachings of Christ, that he died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. So they've grasped these core concepts, and that's what they're rooted in. They're rooted in that teaching. So receiving Christ as Lord means believing the message that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. And living that message, the implications associated with that, would mean baptism and becoming part of a local church. Think of it this way. The Colossians knew the fact of the message about Christ. They'd taken it to heart. It was part of their faith. It had actually a profound influence on their lives. They, they had not strayed from the message, but they were being led away from the message. But Paul urges his readers, he said, look, this is about more than facts. He wants them to dive deep and grasp what this means for their salvation. I mean, think of it as like this, this melody that just fills the room, fills their soul until it brings a smile to their face and a gratitude in their heart. And Paul knows that when people really appreciate the depth of their salvation, the stronger their sense of gratitude, when they understand the extent of what Christ did for them, if they, this church in Colossians would just understand the level of who Christ is and what was done for them, they would pour over in gratitude. And they'd be less likely to be swept away by competing philosophies of religion and those things. But if they start to take their faith for granted or forget the gift that they received in Christ, they're easy targets for any old philosophy that comes against them, promising them another level, this next level of spiritual peace. And that's why Paul in verse 8 makes a shift and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And empty the seed according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole de- fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him 
his head of rule and authority. This passage talks about the contrast between the gospel and specific philosophy that was being presented in Colossians. We don't know exactly what it is. We can make an educated guess based on some of the text, but we don't know for sure. And Paul wants to stress the superiority and the completeness of Christ. He says, don't waste your time chasing something extra just because someone tells you it's better. You have everything you need for spiritual peace. You have it already. You have it in Christ. Now, the word philosophy is typically used in a broad sense, right? I mean, philosophy could cover everything from your philosophy on French fries to the, you know, how the world, why the world exists, right? I mean, it it, it can be used broad. And, but that's not actually, it's more narrow. When Paul talks about philosophy, he's talking about in the context of religious practice, and we'll, we'll look at that more next week when he talks about the judgments about eating and drinking and observing festivals and Sabbaths and the moons and all that stuff. Um, uh, he's talking about more than simply the why questions of life, which is what we mean when we usually say philosophy. He's talking about religious philosophy here specifically. And, and so he's talking about the key contrast between the gospel and whatever this philosophy is in, in this text. The gospel was referred to as the word of truth, And then Paul refers to this philosophy as described as deceptive. He says the the gospel liberates and rescues while this philosophy makes slaves and leads us back into darkness. And he describes it in three phases. He says it, one, it depends on human tradition. Now, tradition is not inherently bad. But Paul discredits whatever this is, this philosophy, he discredits it because it comes from humans, it's not divine revelation. Paul reminds the Colossians that you've received the person of Christ, not a man-made tradition. Then he says this philosophy also depends on the elemental spirits of the world. This phrase is used to discredit the philosophy. He labels it as belonging to the earthly dominion rather than the heavenly dominion which is under the influence of demonic powers, and this philosophy is not based on Christ, even if it might have Christ in the name of it. So Paul's critique of this philosophy is not rejection of philosophical thinking. It's it's not saying don't use rational thought or, 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 or weigh these questions. It's a criticism, a belief system, that distracts or distorts from the message of who Jesus Christ is. It's a call to this church, these the church of Colossae, to remain steadfast in the gospel that they've received, that they've been rooted in, that will bring them truth, bring them liberation. And the Christian faith in the gospel offers fullness, it offers completeness that no other philosophy, no other religion can provide. So Paul is basically saying that all spiritual wisdom comes from Christ and that only spiritual wisdom is found in Christ. And that's a bold statement. Now, he's not talking about all subjects covered under all conversations around the planet. He's talking specifically about spirituality. So the issue isn't with the concept of philosophy, but he does take issue with philosophical religion that's hollow and deceptive and against Christ, which might fall under the category of false religions that carry the name of Christ, but they're actually not Christians. 
uh, or it might fall under a philosophical category that, that comes directly against the worldview of Scripture, something like critical race theory. The bottom line is this, that, philo- that philosophy or any belief system or way of life becomes problematic when it draws us away from Christ or when it seeks salvation outside of Christ. Even if it claims to respect Christ and even if it incorporates some elements of biblical teaching, there's a lot of craziness out there that people throw a Christian label onto. Y'all are aware. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, this is an interesting use of circumcision because it actually broadens our understanding of what it even meant actually in the Old Testament. Circumcision in the Old Testament was an outward religious tradition. In the context, it was a sign that you were part of the Abrahamic covenant, that you were a follower of Yahweh. Thank you, Daniel. It was intended to set the Jews apart from the pagan religions around them. And it appears that one part of several things happening in this church was a group saying that true followers, now one part, true followers of of God need to be circumcised. And we know this church in Colossians, the the, the Colossians church, Colossae, these people were Gentiles. They they had not been circumcised. They, 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 They weren't Jews. Now look, Christians, this is not something, honestly, I don't know if you, I don't know if anybody's ever come to you and said, any guys, anybody ever come to you and said, well, you're not really a believer because you're not circumcised? That's never happened to me in by 50 years on life. Uh, that's not really something I think we need to worry about today. But unfortunately, it still seems way too often Christians behave as if they're missing something crucial to salvation and spiritual health. And they end up chasing after what I'm going to call empty extras. And look, I I get it. It's hard because there are always people inside and outside the church who make us feel like we need to do one more thing. We need to add one more thing to some spiritual checklist to secure our salvation. And Paul saw this happening in Colossians and he wanted to shut it down. Here's what he said. God gave you a new start. He made you alive when you were struck down in sin. He cleared those charges against us that separated us, and we're not lacking anything. You've been given everything you need. If you are a follower of Christ, as you are a believer, regenerated, born again, whatever term you want to use, if you are truly a believer, you've been given everything you need to meet God's expectations and receive God's blessing. Our job then is to live in that continually, live in that truth, live in that belief, and be thankful for what God's done to us and for us and through us. And look, any religious teaching or any philosophy that promises salvation or forgiveness through anything other than the 
death and resurrection of Christ is fundamentally flawed, and it's at best just pointing you towards something that will distract you. At worst, it's going to lead you to hell. It could easily lead you astray if you're not really a follower of Christ and if you're not rooted in the truth of the Scriptures. Paul affirms that Christian truth, believers, this is what he says. I, I, this is such a unique way for him to, to use this term. He says, we have been spiritually circumcised. Now, that at the time, we don't think too much of it, but that was an extreme statement in the day when he wrote that. You've been spiritually circumcised marked as God's people, not by physical circumcision, but by their union with Christ. That's what he's telling this church. This is what he's saying. It has huge implications for the church today. Paul's saying that the only circumcision that counts is not physical, but spiritual. A circumcision they've already received in Christ. And he's using this symbolically. But he's and literally, he's actually doing symbol and literal. He's saying physically, physical circumcision will not take you to heaven. It's this is how he's covering this, and and to say this, this is one of the reasons we know there had to be some Jewish believers who were in this church pushing this on this these these young believers. He's saying, no, you've been spiritually circumcised through what? Through the death of Christ, and that marked you as part of the family of God. Paul, Paul used, I don't, I, if, if you think about it, Paul uses clothes metaphors a lot. I mean, Ephesians is one of the best places to put on the whole armor of God, right? That's just nothing but a bunch of clothes. But he uses clothes metaphors a lot. And he does it again here, but he does it in such a, such a powerful way. He's, he uses the phrase stripping off the body of flesh. It's like he really wants to highlight the, the physical the nature, the brutality of Christ's death. And when Paul refers to the circumcision of Christ, he's using this striking metaphor to illustrate the crucifixion where Christ's physical body, he's basically saying Christ's physical body was torn off of him. And it's kind of like, when he talks about reconciliation back in chapter 1, verse 22, referring to Christ's physical death, this understanding that circumcision of Christ, it, it, it's a metaphor for his death. And if you think about circumcision of Christ representing Christ's death, that it lines up with the beliefs of, of Christianity that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. It's like Paul saying this, Christ's death was a spiritual circumcision for all of us that are believers. And then verse 13, and you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how did he accomplish this? 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, I, I've been in multiple services and seen several, several pastors in my life take this text and, and preach it and get you to write a sin on a piece of paper and then come forward and they had a cross on the stage and some nails and a hammer and you nailed that thing to the, 
to the, and if you've ever been a part of that, I'm not knocking it. I mean, it's impactful. Um, and, and I, I actually, I've seen it enough and I, and I loved the symbolism of it, uh, in the times I'd seen it that when I was reading through Colossians over the last several months, I actually thought about doing that. Not with this cross. We get something, didn't mind getting nail holes in. But um, the more I thought about, actually the more I looked at the text, I realized why that symbol is impactful. It doesn't actually paint the right picture what's happening in this text. The text tells us that God holds a handwritten note a record of debt, a certificate of debt. Think of it as an IOU with your name on it that tells you you owe him a debt that you can never pay. And you don't hold that note. God holds it. It's a sin debt. We've sinned. Everyone in this room has sinned. I don't, I've never met one person in my life that told me I've never done anything wrong. Now, what's, where, where, where's the line? Who makes the decision on right and wrong? God, as creator, established a set of laws. They're his demands, and we've broken those laws. That's what Paul's telling us here. And because of that, and because God is holy, the only way for us to restore a right relationship with God is to pay that sin debt. The problem is we can't pay it. And honestly, Romans 3 tells us not only do we not have the ability to pay it, we don't even have the desire to want to pay it. But it was paid. Not by us nailing our IOU to the cross. We would have never done that on our own. God nailed that to the cross. in the form of Jesus Christ, his son. Because you couldn't, because you were spiritually dead, but you have been revived through Christ's resurrection, sharing in the new life that he's received when he rose from the dead, which means all of your past missteps and errors and sins are washed away in God's grace, nailed to the cross. Should have done that song this morning, Alicia. Right? That IOU is paid by Christ on the cross. Look, if you live in America, you are familiar with debt. If you've been watching the news, we've been having debt conversations about the government the last few weeks. And I think, I think we did something. Nobody's happy, which probably means they did the right thing. And so, look, you picture a mountain of debt. Think of a number that you know there's no way you could pay off. A number so great that you don't even care. I'll give you all an example, personal example. Where years ago when I was dealing with cancer and I'm getting all these bills in the mail, um, I, I, would, I would get these letters that would say, here's what, here's what you just did, here's the procedure, here's the shot, here's the chemo, whatever. And here's what insurance paid. Here's what else the hospital might have covered. And here's what you owe. That's the way those those bills were coming in that that, that particular time. 
And Lisa walked in and handed me a letter. And I could tell, man, she she was she she had turned white. And I was like, what in the world? And I I recognized the envelope. I pulled it out and I'm I'm scanning through the thing and it said, here's here's what this cost. Here's what insurance paid. And down in the section about here's what you owe, it said $278,000. And I just laughed. I just laughed. I was like, okay, good luck. <laughs> and Lisa's like, what, what, are you, what are you laughing about? I said, Lisa, there's no way we can pay this. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They can add another hundred they could take a hundred thousand dollars of it off they could take two hundred thousand dollars of it off it doesn't matter i we can't pay this so what are they going to do what are they going to get we were renting a house at the time our we, our our cars were terrible i mean yeah okay take what i got that that'll get you about 10 grand you know i just laughed it was the number was so big it was like i can't i can't pay that so why did I, so I honestly, I honestly, at the time, I, I just didn't care. Now, long story short, it was a mistake, and we didn't actually do anything on that bill, but it was a, made for a good sermon illustration. All right, so, look, Christ took our transgressions. He took our unfulfilled promises, our mistakes, and he used his death to erase them in a triumphant act of defiance. He took our spiritual bankruptcy and nailed it to the cross. So remember that no matter how far you've strayed, how many mistakes you've made, there is always hope in Christ because it's what Christ did, not what you've done. The past is forgiven. The slate is clean and the future is yours. It's shaped by the guidance of the truth of the gospel. Here's the big picture. Jesus dying on the cross didn't just clear our sins. It actually broke the power of sin over us. That's what verse 14 is telling us about here. And the amazing thing is that the cross, which seemed like a symbol of defeat, was actually turned into a symbol of victory. The forces that thought they were winning by crucifying Jesus were wrong. And they ended up losing the power they had because they killed Christ. And now Jesus has proven himself stronger, forced them out, broke that power. And, and today, look, we don't talk much about principalities and powers, probably not as much as we should. But I know this for sure. We all face things that are bigger than we can handle and more powerful than we know what to do with. But here's the good news. Since we're connected to Jesus, we share in his victory. We share in his freedom. So no matter how tough things get, remember this. Jesus is Lord of everything, all the ups and downs, the good and bad. They're under his control. No matter what comes against you, no matter what philosophy is pushed on you, no matter who tells you, if you want spiritual peace, what you really need to do is this. Add this to your checklist of religion chase this freedom chase this and that's what you really need to do it's it's christ 
And even though some things may still seem like chaos, hold on to the hope that one day, because of Jesus, there's a day coming. And I know you want it to be now. It's not now. It's not today. Our hope's not in the now. Our hope is in where we're headed because of who we are in Christ, because nothing can separate us from his love. And that's the ultimate victory that Paul says, that's what you need to hold on to. Amen? Amen. Worship team, y'all go ahead and come on up.